Welcome to episode 26 of That's So Second Millennium. I'm Paul Geesting, and we're continuing our discussion of the history of geology and its relationship to the Bible, obviously, particularly the book of Genesis. So we began a few episodes back talking about the career of Nicholas Steno and the origins of geology in the 17th century. Uh, we've spent the last couple of episodes moving that history uh, picking back up in the late 18th century and into the 19th century when a lot of what we think of as modern geology began to take shape. The, geolo the geologic time scale um, and many theories about the origins of rocks and mountains. So, as I mentioned a couple episodes ago, um, I recently had a discussion with a, old, a friend of a friend from college um, who, a little to my surprise, and a little to our mutual friend's surprise, um, seemed to be very torn about the possibility that maybe the sort of what I've been calling the Genesis minimalist or the biblical minimalist time scale that, you know, limits us to about 6,000 years of Earth history, that he's, he's really troubled about whether that might be, that might really be the, uh, the actual situation as opposed to a time scale with a universe that's 13-odd billion years old, and an Earth that's 4.6 billion years old. So, the interesting issue is, is that, of course, in the 17th century, Nicholas Steno, uh, for example, would almost certainly have told you that he believed that there was a flood sometime around, you know, 3000 BC, plus or minus however many centuries the date is not uh, immediately accessible to me. So, during that time period between about the year 1700 and between a harder date, the year 1830, and again, a lot of this discussion I'm basing on uh, the text of Anthony Hallam's uh, Great Geological Controversies. Uh, but in that era, of course, 1830 is the publication of Charles Lyell's Principles of Geology, which really kind of marked the end of the biblical minimalist timescale. That's, and that's of course, you know, to think about the exact terms in which our debate was couched, you know, myself as a, you know, a geologist educated at the end of the 20th century, of course, I slip immediately to thinking of radiometric dating and all the many isotopic systems that we have. And, of course, there are uh, dozens of them at this point. Um, early on, attention focused primarily on thorium and the two isotopes, U-235 and U-238, uranium, all of which decay to three separate isotopes of lead, which allows you to check the results in important ways. Of course, you know, that's not airtight. Nothing in science, of course, is a final, final proof. Um, and, of course, we have the cautionary tale of the late 19th century and the sort of self-satisfaction of physicists that they had pretty much discovered everything there was to uh, discover, and that most of what they were going to do from then on was push the limits of precision. And then, of course, their world was overturned by the advent of 20th century physics. We have that cautionary tale in our background. And, of course, in geology, in many cases, our conclusions are even less, you know, considerably less certain than the ones in physics. Um, but nevertheless, it's worth considering, you know, the, the young Earth creationist story you know, having been brought up completely outside that milieu, I've, I've never spent time uh, really considering that a likely scenario for the actual history of the Earth. 
So I don't know. Um, and of course, you know, every individual person who subscribes to that belief is going to have a different set of uh, details uh, attached to that, what they think of um, the Earth as it is and why it has the structure that it has. So what do they think about, you know, because of course this goes back to the idea that, again, Steno and his contemporaries in the 17th century had that same belief. They, they would have uh, subscribed to the idea that, you know, the Earth is only about so old and the, uh, the flood that... Uh, as ascribed to the time of this uh, this man Noah, would have been you know not only historic but also global, which is a tricky detail. Um, so, how did the world get from the 17th and 18th and early 19th century world uh, with many geologists, many practicing geologists, uh, making very crucial contributions to the study of geology and their observations are valid down to the present day. They've never been, no one has gone back out to these outcrops and refuted what they said, said that they simply saw it wrong. Um, so what happened? What happened to convert the vast majority of geologists away from this idea, you know, to finally pretty much eliminate uh, almost entirely, not quite entirely, because there's still the odd few people today, and in fact, probably more so now than in the 1960s and 1970s, but you know, more so now is still a very small fraction. In any case, what do you what do you think happened um, in in that era? So I'm this podcast. I'm going to attempt to discuss, give a summary of what happened in that crucial era at the beginning of the 19th century that led people away from believing that um, there was a global flood about 5,000 years ago, give or take, uh, where that would have to fit in the geologic time scale. If you, take, if you take Genesis and not just take it literally, but again, I would argue, take it over-literally. Read your own definitions into words that are maybe not uh, what, what the actual human author of that book even meant. That's 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 a question I'll, I'll I'll revisit very briefly at the end of the podcast. But to get back to the story of the um, advent, you know, the, the the story of the history of the geology in this formative period in the early nineteenth century. So we go back to thinking about fossils, which is what Steno, not surprisingly, since Steno started gained his first fame as an anatomist. It's not surprising that a lot of his fame during his lifetime was actually as a student of fossils. So the idea that Fossils, what we now recognize as fossils, um, things that look like shells in particular, uh, which can be found very readily. They're very hard. They're very recognizable. But in the late 17th century, it was considered a very potent argument against the idea that these were the remains of living things that they had to have formed abiotically somehow. The fact that the shells often, although they you know, have some broad similarities to living things, in many cases they don't look like living things. And there's whole classes of shells. For example, ammonites are very famous. There are no ammonites. There are no living ammonids. And so there are no more fossil ammonites since the, the Cretaceous, what we now call the Cretaceous-Tertiary extinction at the end, you know, about 65 million years ago, when many things went extinct, including, of course, dinosaurs for the most part, except for birds and these ammonids and many other marine and terrestrial life forms. So the fact, you know, people could not, many people could not accept or wrap their heads around the idea that things had gone extinct. 
That was the case in the late 17th century. But over the course of the 18th century, this became more and more thinkable. And by the early 19th century, there had been enough work done. You know, people had studied enough different locations, especially in Europe, obviously, published the results and communicated with each other, that they could recognize groupings of fossils, that in fact, these extinct animals, taking that hypothesis, they found that a cert certain extinct animals, their shells were found in association with the remains of other extinct animals, and you could uh, build up these distinctive groupings. And gradually, over time, the conviction became general that these were simply, you know, they, these showed us the history of life across time. That shells in these certain rocks, whether they be in southern Germany, or perhaps in England, perhaps they'd be in Wales, or perhaps they would be in Russia, or some other part of Spain, etc., etc. That was telling us that those came from a particular age in the Earth's history. And that as these changed, these as time went on, these communities changed. And of course, once you make that connection, you then, your next step in hypothesizing and theorizing is to start using these fossil assemblages to cross-correlate the rocks across Europe, and eventually, of course, across the rest of the planet. And that turned out to have worked. It did not encounter major internal inconsistencies, and the internal in inconsistencies that did seem to come up got resolved over time. And so that, in the early 19th century, work was already well underway to start the geologic timescale that we still use today. In many ways, it descends, as we mentioned from um, Gottlieb Werner on the the German at the uh, in the late 18th century, who was so influential, even though he was so often wrong. Nevertheless, he thought big, and people who think big, even when their specific ideas are wrong, are an inspiration to others. And many of his students went on, even though they repudiated many of his ideas, to do you know great things. Um, so that brings us you know back to this character of James Hutton. So Hutton again, also in the late 18th century. Uh, flourished a little after, you know, well, during Werner's lifetime, um, but starting a little later. So Hutton is this proponent, this first great proponent, not the first proponent, but the first great proponent of what, in Anglo-American parlance, we call uniformitarianism. In continental parlance, is often called actualism, which is just the idea that the things we actually see today are the only types of things that have gone on. And that can be that can be taken in a narrow sense, that the laws of physics simply haven't changed, which of course is pretty much the going hypothesis. We're not going to get very far in geology without some idea as to what the laws of physics are. And if they've changed over time, it would be very hard to tell exactly how that worked. But also, again, we don't necessarily have any particular evidence to believe that that has happened. So we go on. You know, again, it's science. We go on with that assumption. Hutton was criticized for a little bit stronger form of uniformitarianism, and that was taken to even greater uh, extent by Lyell when he uh, wrote his first edition of the Principles of Geology. So Hutton is famous for a quotation for this, for this passage, we can see no vestige of the beginning, no prospect of an end in the context of studying the earth. And some of his critics at the time um, accused him of bringing back a concept from podcast past, this idea of Aristotelian eternalism, 
It's a sort of false dichotomy between, well, either the Earth has this short, finite history, 6,000 years, and in the, in the year 1800 it was not even 6,000 years, or this idea that the Earth is just, you know, in this Hindu, ancient Greek sense, has just always existed and is just going through these eternal cycles, or that it's simply always been more or less as it is. Um, Hutton responded to these criticisms by saying that his statement was a comment on the limitations of what we can observe. The evidence for any beginning is buried under countless uh, layers of things that were formed by processes that we, see, that we see today. That was Hutton's assertion. And that's a pretty defensible assertion, especially considering what they could see in the, the extent of published knowledge at the end of the 18th century. Um, so Hutton at least contributed to this idea of a finite but very old Earth, not necessarily, an, you know, certainly not explicitly espousing an infinite Earth, and an Earth that's infinite in age. So there was a kind of final burst of interest in what we what could be called diluvialist theory, and sometimes I think that term was even used at the time. Diluvial simply meaning having to do with a flood. If you've ever heard the old term antediluvian, which degenerated and just meaning really, really old, it literally meant before the flood, just as in the United States of America we say antebellum for the period before the Civil War, because, of course, the Civil War is a major upheaval. Likewise, the flood was believed to be this major upheaval. And occasionally there are the terms post-bellum and post-diluvian that would be the complements. So in the 1820s, there was a final burst of interest, and especially among Englishmen, at least according to Hallam's uh, account, who were, you know, devout Protestants, and were making observations in places, or receiving reports of observations in places across Europe, uh, and into into the New World and other parts of the world. So they uh, there, there's a term called drift, and another term called erratics, and we still use those terms to some extent today. Um, you can see erratic boulders or deposits of gravel and sand, in places where they just don't seem to belong, according to contemporary the contemporary positions of watercourses, or just the contemporary positions of slopes, gravity. You know, you can find boulders perched on hillsides in the Alps and elsewhere. Why are those there? There's, you know, the stream, a stream valley might be a few hundred feet further down, um, there's no reason why a boulder falling under the influence of gravity would stop at this particular location. So there was drift. And there's in particular drift and deposits of gravel and sand, especially in caves that held very recent um, fossil fauna. And a bundle of these observations were gathered together and taken in the 1820s by this last generation of enthusiastic diluvialists as being the products of the flood. Now, there was always a problem with this in that human remains were, at that time at least, never found in the association. So we're talking in the 1820s still. By up, to, up through 1830, there was no human remains found in these deposits. So this is the scene in which Lyell drops the principles of geology in 1830. So Lyell was a skillful arguer. He went to law school, although he was never a very enthusiastic lawyer, according to Hutton's account. So Lyell takes Hutton and pushes Hutton to the extreme. He pushes uniformitarianism to tremendous extremes. 
Um, even to the point of saying, for example, looking at the fossil record and saying, well, you know, if we simply had the climate that existed in England, you know, in, in whatever period, you know, in, say, the old red sandstone period, which we now call the Paleozoic and, and in fact, the, the Devonian, I believe, or maybe the early Carboniferous. Um, if, we, if we simply had the climate that uh, obtained back then, we would, we would have the same animals. No one was willing to follow him that far. Um, and eventually, as his principles of geology went through multiple editions, he, he, he dialed it back a little bit. But that was his impulse, was to push uniformitarianism to the extreme. And he criticized, you know, the people that, again, I would call Genesis minimalists. I don't really even want to use the term literalists, because there's a lot of... The, the implication that I'm trying to say with that, to bring with that term is that they believe that Genesis said most of what there was to say. Um, but Lyell would lump them and Deluvialists, which Deluvialists could go well beyond the idea the, of Noah's flood as something happening 3,000 years ago or 5,000 years ago, whatever your time scale demands. Um, it would be, they, they would take that idea and they would, as, as we sort of discussed uh, last time, that would be their, in the last two podcasts, that would be a branching off point. Well, there there might have been a flood at some point, and there there was one last large defining flood, but it could have been a lot longer ago than that. It probably predated humanity. Of course, you know, since human remains were not found in these deposits that in the 1820s were cited as evidence for this large flood, that's not surprising. So they were taking that evidence into account. Lyell would even take catastrophists in general, and catastrophists could believe in floods, or they could believe in large volcanic eruptions, or they could even believe in stranger cataclysms like the loss of the moon. This was a hypothesis that uh, was bandied about in the 19th century quite a bit. The idea that, say, perhaps the Pacific Ocean Basin is the hole where the moon used to be, and that the Earth was at one point spinning fast enough to fling the moon away. That would be a cataclysm. That would be something that doesn't happen every day. That would be an example of a catastrophist doctrine. So Lyell would lump all those. He would even lump in people that uh, Hallam calls directionalists. I'm not sure how much that term was used at the time. But even the idea that the Earth is simply cooling off, maybe the rates of change, the rates of growth of mountains, maybe the rates of rainfall and the rates of erosion are changing with time. Um, anyone, all the way from one end of that extreme of the, the sort of Genesis minimalist, all the way out to someone who, who merely assumed that things weren't going geological processes weren't going at the same rate as they used to be in the past. So Lyell is a very, very hard uniformitarian, you might say. And his hard uniformitarianism was never accepted completely by anyone except him. And he was, he was argued back over the remaining course of his life to dial it back somewhat. It is, after all, so to take the directionalist critique, um, it's just common sense that the Earth has been cooling down with time. As once you once you accept the volcanoes, and of course this comes from Hutton. Hutton is the is the uh, primordial Plutonist who advocates the idea that the Earth is hot on the inside, and that's the source of volcanoes and of uh, molten intrusions. So Lyell's uniformitarianism was never accepted wholesale. Um, but nevertheless, he pushed the debate well in that direction. 
And there was a bias against, quote, catastrophism for a very long time, well into the 20th century, and to some extent even today. Although in the late 20th century, we've, we've come to realize that there are, there are events that happen infrequently in the geologic record that we certainly don't have, you know, human oral or written history about, for example. Which would be which would be anathema to Lyell, especially in, in his early and more strident form of uniformitarianism. So what happened to this evidence that once was taken as proof of alluvialism? What happened to these drift this drift and these erratic boulders? As you may know, most of that is now understood to be the product of continental ice sheets, the ice ages, which in eighteen thirty People had not really even explored Greenland to the point of being certain that Greenland was covered with an ice sheet. That didn't happen until for a few decades. And our Antarctica, even later than that. Um, the gradual realization that we you could extrapolate from structures seen in valleys in Switzerland, first of all, to recognize that the glaciers in Switzerland once extended further than they do now, and then to look at terrains in Scotland, the Nordic countries, Ireland, Wales, etc., and, of course, North America, which was covered by even more ice, according to the evidence that we have, than the Old World. Gradually, it became recognized that that's, that's the source of drift. Um, drift, in the context of boulders, is going to have been uh, transported by solid ice. Solid, but plastic. So it flows under its own weight. Um, drift in the form of sand and gravel is mostly molten, or I'm sorry, molten. Well, I mean, it is molten ice, right? Water is molten ice, but we don't usually use that term. Melted ice, which of course takes the material that glaciers bulldoze uh, and sorts it out, takes the fine material away, and leaves us with what we now call outwash sands and gravels. And of course, the material that the uh, glacier simply bulldozes into place, we call till. Um, and till is a riotous mixture of everything from gravel and uh, cobbles and boulders on down to clay, and is a pretty distinctive phenomenon um, because water can't do that. Water, by definition, or you know, simply by simple physics, cannot help but sort the materials that it transports, whereas uh, glaciers don't have to do that. They're simply hauling things along within the solid mass of the glacier or on top of the solid mass of the glacier, um, and they, they can be transported all at the same time without sorting by grain size. So where did the debate... So, so that brings an end, really, uh, to the debate over this idea that the Genesis Flood is the core, or at least the most recent important, or, or that a flood reminiscent of the Genesis Flood, that perhaps the Flood in Genesis was a, a garbled account of... Um, from 1830 on, reference to that really died away. Um, certainly, you can continue to find people from here and there who have espoused the idea, but usually not people, at least not in the context of that work, making much of a contribution to geology from there. So the, age of, the debate over the age of the Earth, um, from the 1850s onward, transitioned into a debate between geologists, and we might say old-school geologists, and physicists. And there was a new sub-discipline, which is by now definitely a discipline in its own right, we call geophysics, the application of physics to the solid Earth. 
those people began to weigh in on the idea of, well, how old is the Earth? It's all very well to be vaguely Huttonian and Lyellian and uniformitarian and say, well, it's been around for a very long time. Well, that's nice, but can we do any better than that? I mean, what's the whole enterprise of science about, right? So, in the late 19th century, and especially with the advent of thermodynamics, people began to address this question. And of course, one of the most important figures, and the, the one we most remember today, the only, the only personality we know by name from that era, uh, if we have, you know, those of us who even have much awareness of this uh, period in science history at all, we mostly think of this William Thompson, Lord Kelvin. He's more commonly known as Lord Kelvin, even though he didn't get that title until pretty late in life. So, Lord Kelvin, of course, was very famous and had a large personality, and like many large personalities in the history of science, and for that matter, politics, sort of threw his weight around to some degree, and is sort of known for issuing ultimata to geologists, and what I'm calling old-school geologists, stratigraphers, people concerned with the amount of time for the deposition and the uplift and the erosion of strata. So Darwin, for example, Hallam cites that Darwin went on record as saying that this particular dome in the British Isles took about 300, you know, very arm-waving estimate, it took about 300 million years to erode down to its present level. So that was one of the rare situations where those people would even go on record as, you know, espousing a certain number of years. They knew their evidence was pretty vague. They needed a long time. They probably needed hundreds of millions of years. And then the physicists came in and started arguing things like, well, the sun or the earth, well, the only thing we can think of for the source of their primordial heat is gravitational potential energy. So if we bring all their masses together from infinity, crash them into each other, that's the total amount of heat that we have to work with. And the solid earth can only have started to exist once rocks cooled down below their melting point. And life can only have happened once water condensed and then cooled down to a certain temperature, such that proteins could coagulate into something. And you know, so, th so this is the amount of time that you have to work with. So Kelvin uh, would issue these sort of ultimata, and geologists would range from being very troubled by this to scoffing at him. And of course, those estimates, many of the physical estimates, almost all of them were 100 million years or less, sometimes radically less, perhaps 20 million years. So that debate went on for decades. That was, that was the arena on which the debate uh, took place back in that era, in the, in the late 19th century, to the very beginning of the 20th century. And of course, that apple cart was upset because the physicists, even though they were very arrogant and very sure of themselves, turned out to be the ones who were substantially wrong. <laughs> because they didn't know about radioactivity. And, of course, radioactivity is part and parcel of the whole 20th century overturn of everything, um, of the foundations of physics, uh, because radioactivity is ultimately a quantum physics effect. So, the, And, of course, radioactivity had two extremely important consequences for the debate. First off, it said that Kelvin is essentially wrong, because he's not taking into account heat sources that exist inside the Earth, i.e. radioactive isotopes. Um, for that matter, he was horrifically, hellaciously, hilariously wrong about the age of the sun, because the sun is being driven by nuclear fusion, which he had no idea 
Um, no one had any idea of that, the existence of that heat source. So that's a huge error, and that meant that the dates that you get by trying to track down a cooling history of the Earth or the Sun have to be completely wrong if you're just using 19th century physics. Secondly, of course, radioactivity leads us to radiometric dating, where again we can track individual isotopes, we can measure the parents, we can measure the daughters, we can measure multiple isotopic systems, compare one with the other, and, you know, one isotopic system criticizes another, and we can get actual numeric ages for a variety of minerals and rocks. By no means all of them, but a lot of them. And enough of them that we can complement the stratigraphic timescale, which was always the the timescale by strata and fossils could never be anything but a relative timescale. But it was a really detailed relative timescale. And it was able to and it was confirmed in great detail as radiometric dating came into its own, the methods were refined and became reliable, and eventually they confirmed that time scale in great detail. Occasionally, of course, you could find you know errors in one uh, form of dating or the other, but those were surprisingly rare. So where does that leave us for the debate between, because at this point we've left the historic mainstream I'm always reluctant to use that term because mainstream is in the eye of the beholder to a large extent, but not entirely. And yeah, the 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 idea of using Noah's flood as a item in the stratigraphic record that we need to reconcile our accounts with just hasn't worked out. So where does that leave us today, over a century after radiometric dating was invented? Well, it pays to keep in mind that that itself, radiometric dating, which is what many of us incline to sort of short circuit to when we think about the age of the Earth, is a very, very late development in this whole debate about the history of the Earth and its age. It came over a century after, you know, the first critiques, and less than a century, but, you know, about 80 years after Lyell. It's not a primary argument. It's, you know, obviously it's historically not a primary argument, and perhaps it's not even a sci scientifically a primary argument. Even, you know, now that we have it, we should use that in preference to other arguments. Um, the evidence from stratigraphy and, you know, and other aspects of Earth's surface, you know, at this point, as a matter of fact, plate tectonics, the magnetic striping of the seafloor is just too weird a thing you, know, you think about the number of things that have to be created just so 6,000 years ago because there is not time to create them since then. Well, yeah, yeah. I mean, sedimentation, erosion of, you know, say, the Grand Canyon. And in particular, I mean, the magnetic striping on the seafloor, seafloor spreading, the ev which is evidence for seafloor spreading, um, it's, that's, that is, is arguably a better... Uh, better approach to the age of the Earth, why it has to be really old, why 6,000 years is completely inadequate, and that the Earth would simply have had to be created, as it were, by a trickster god who put this evidence, <laughs> put this evidence there from the beginning in order to what? Well, I mean, you know, some generic statement like, to test our faith, okay, the Jesus, you know, 
the Jesus of the New Testament who regularly exhorts his followers to think, look at what's going on, <laughs> draw your judgments. Um, I don't know. I, d I don't see the, the, uh, the consistency there. So, and, and to come back to the original point, keep in mind, geology, which arose in the 17th century, just like physics, just like chemistry, just like biology, really, um, as anything like we know them today, they were born in the 17th century in an intellectual climate that was completely steeped in the attitude of taking the Bible at its word, to the degree humanly possible. There were no shortage of geologists who wanted a global Genesis flood. That would have made them feel very comfortable. They would have been very happy with that. Um, and even people who had some sort of axe to grind against religion, which there certainly were some, there have always been some in every century of the Christian era, um, but they would have, you know, they, they could have been reduced to quibbling about details, you know, looking for, if there was really this clear evidence of a flood, they would have, you know, they would have found ways to criticize it, but they, you know, still would have acknowledged there was a flood. If if the evidence was equivocal, the debate would be going on to the present day. The evidence is not that equivocal. So, and in, and in conclusion, you know, thinking about it as, you know, from my personal spec perspective of someone who takes the Bible very seriously, um... Does the text of Genesis demand a global flood? That's the real question. You know, it's it's all very well to say, you know, I, I take scripture alone as my, you know, basis. Of course, you ask the question, does scripture itself give you this basis any more than does scripture itself tell you that Moses wrote the Torah or any other such question that um, you might come to in passing? Are we really sure that the the ancient Hebrew words that we translate, for example, as years, or as the whole earth, the whole planet, um, any of those words, are we certain that those mean what we think they mean? And then finally, you know, maybe the biggest picture question of all, is it, you know, are we somehow giving God greater glory and credit by assuming that he created, you know, ad hoc created everything that we see in exploring the Earth and other planets 6,000 years ago, is that God even any greater in concept than the God that created a universe 13 billion years ago, that created the Earth, you know, that, that put the universe into existence with principles that would lead to the creation of the Sun and the Earth about 4.6 billion years ago, and that would lead down to the present day, and created the universe the size of which we see, who's been present throughout that whole history, that's, I mean, ultimately, how are you going to answer that question? How are you going to resolve that question? If you're going to rely on that as an argument for saying that God is somehow, you know, that you're somehow not doing justice to God by believing that the earth is as old as geology has concluded that it is. All right, that's it for this episode. Look forward to being with you next time.